I think blockchain is going to be a very critical technology for the future development of the world. It's not only ab about financing. Blockchain technology is not about bitcoins. Bitcoin is just a small function of the blockchain technology. I'm a strong believer of the blockchain technology. This is not about Bitcoin or digital currencies or crypto assets. It's the underlying blockchain technology. Now people can trust each other and they can transact with anything from money to uh, music to votes to uh, their identities peer to peer. Blockchain is poised to revolutionize business and economics as we know it. You just heard Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, the largest digital marketplace in the world, and Dan Tapscott, widely recognized as the leading authority on the impact of technology on business and society, giving their take on blockchain. Welcome to Future of Humanity by Dean Anand. My name is Anand Anandalingam, and I've been the Dean of Business Schools in two prestigious universities, the University of Maryland and Imperial College London. I've been a professor at the University of Pennsylvania with a joint appointment in engineering and the Wharton School of Business, and I've worked on the interface of technology and business for several decades. In this episode, we will talk about blockchain and its impact on the business world in the future. Being the underlying technology that powers Bitcoin, blockchain seems to be sweeping through the world and getting people excited about its seemingly endless applications. So many companies are popping up to take advantage of blockchain to power supply chains, food networks, philanthropy, and even the drug trade, both legal and illicit. It is important for us to know what works and what does not. We are privileged to have our, as our guest, Dr. Tej Anand, who has had a long career in technology, including adapting blockchain to some innovative applications in the healthcare industry. Tej is currently a clinical professor at the University of Maryland and teaches an executive course called Blockchain Business Imperative at the university. I'm joined on my conversation with Tej Anand by my friend and colleague Joe Bailey, who's a clinical professor of management science at the University of Maryland. Joe is currently the assistant dean of undergraduate programs at the Smith School of Business and has a PhD from MIT and a bachelor's degree from Carnegie Mellon. So, Tej, maybe you can say something about yourself. Well, thank you, Anand, for having me. I've had a long career. I spent about 30 years in industry, and I break my career into I spent the first 10 years doing AI and data research and product development. I spent my second five years being a CIO at various companies, and then I spent my last 15 years in healthcare. And I was a, what I consider a business technology executive, someone who brought technology and business together. And that's really my passion. Technology, but technology in the service of business, technology in the service of society. And I feel like blockchain is one of those technologies that we should put in service of society and make sure it serves us. Sometimes people are excited about technology or looking for problems. Like, is blockchain a solution that's looking for a problem? Is it kind of something that we've had an appetite for and finally is coming to fore? In my mind, I don't think blockchain is a solution looking for a problem. I think 
blockchain, when it got started, was designed to solve a problem that was emerging in society. And there were some people who viewed that problem in a certain way. So let's just go back a little bit as to the individuals who came up with Bitcoin. This is now 2008. We've had the financial crisis. We've had the meltdown. Some people believe that the government incorrectly bailed people who shouldn't have been bailed out. Some people believe that government has power they shouldn't have. And these are the individuals who set about creating Bitcoin. And they want there to be a cash and a currency that the government doesn't have control over. And they are not the first creators of electronic cash, but they're the first creators of electronic cash that solve the problem of double spend, where money cannot be spent multiple times. So blockchain obviously was a technology that was around, but got really, really exciting because of Bitcoin. And the Bitcoin was started, as you said, because of the financial crisis. Can you tell a little bit about that initial story? I, apparently, there was this anonymous Japanese or somebody pretending to be Japanese uh, who started this whole thing. Well, I don't know if I can say they are pretending to be Japanese or they are <laughs> Japanese or they are who they are. All we know is that there is a paper published in a blog that talks about electronic cash and gives a protocol for solving the double spend problem. It's based on distributed computing. It's based on cryptography. It's based on peer-to-peer -peer networks. And it has some aspects of game theory. Now, what's important is before the paper is published, there's many, many design decisions that have been made. And those design decisions are made in a blog. And that blog is archived and you can go read it. And many of the players that are involved in that blog are around. Some of them are no more. But these are players involved. And what I find interesting is if you drew a Venn diagram of all the people who believe in cryogenics and all the people who believe in Bitcoin, there's a big overlap. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> That's very interesting. Can you tell us what is the double spend problem? I haven't heard this before. So the double spend problem is that if I have electronic cash, I'm poor, I have 10 bucks, I'm going to give them to you, Joe. I like you. I'll give them to you. Sounds good to me. But then I'm going to also give them to Anand. And since this was electronic cash, it's not like I gave you my 10 bucks and I don't have them anymore. I might still have a copy of them. So that's what we call the double spend problem. I'm spending the money multiple times. So the idea is if we've got some type of digital currency, how can we make sure that it has the right ownership so that two people that say Anand and I can't both spend that same digital currency? Absolutely. And then we, we can take it further and we can say, and whatever you're spending, you have the rights to spend, you know, because our economy is all about exchange. So the money that you're spending, you got from somewhere else. And if I gave you that money, I got it from somewhere else. So how can we build a system where we can track the provenance of all the money everywhere all the time? Because what I was describing to you was cash, hard cash, greenbacks. They are all anonymous. And I can spend them once and they're done. Now, as soon as I go to other means of spending money through banks and through credit and through Havala and through all kinds of weird stuff, you're no longer anonymous. A whole bunch of people know what you're doing. And guess what? They're calling you right now to tell you, you should buy this, Anand, because you just spent money here. So it's not anonymous anymore. And all these people in the middle aren't doing it for fun. They're doing it for money. And some of the money they charge is pretty substantial. So what are you doing? You're trading off your privacy and you're paying money. Now you say, well, I don't pay the money. The merchant pays the money. No, you pay the money. They give it right back to you. So just to move on from there, is that kind of what got you interested in blockchains as an application for other things, not just bitcoins? 
when I got interested in blockchain, it wasn't really the money part. It wasn't the currency part. What got me excited was all the parties in the exchange have the same data. So I used to work in healthcare, and I used to spend a lot of my time doing AI and big data and all that kind of stuff, building models for how we can predict this and predict that. While all the while, that's a problem, but all the while there's a bigger problem where we just don't agree with each other, where our systems are so opaque because they have different data. So my thinking was, wait a minute, could I use blockchain to just normalize the data across the healthcare system and make everybody aware of the status, simple status of a claim, which we were having so much trouble with? That's where I got interested. So I was more interested in the distributed ledger to solve what I call the non-sexy problems in healthcare of just operations, of everybody being on track and everybody kind of thinking where they are. Let's unpack this for our audience a little bit because the distributed ledger, which blockchain has, is a very exciting part, I think, about what makes cryptocurrency exciting. It solves this double spend problem, right? Where the idea is like, because there is an open ledger, there's not one central authority, as Anand's pointing out, it's disintermediated. But it seems like in healthcare, as much as we might want to say, like, look, we've got an insurer and we want a hospital and we want their data to be similar and maybe even transparent through an open ledger. I mean, health information seems to be the one most susceptible to privacy concerns. That's a great question, Joe. So whenever you're building an application using blockchain, what you have to be careful about is what is the data you're putting on the chain? Because the data you put on the chain, A, it's immutable. B, if you implemented it in a permissionless public way, then it's visible to everyone. Even though people might not know that this data belongs to you and this data belongs to Anand, but it's visible to everyone. What you do is, so what is going to be on the blockchain? So I would never put a healthcare record on the blockchain. I would never put the details of the claim on a blockchain. But what I would put is, hey, claim A went from provider X to health insurer Y, and its current agreed upon status is not paid. I see. But it's very possible that if we have two people that are transacting, even the nature of the transaction could potentially be kind of indicative of the nature of the transaction. I'm not going to a specialty doctor and things like that just for kicks, like I'm doing that because I'm looking for a particular procedure, and that could be potentially embarrassing to me. Yeah, but I'm not putting that on the, on the I blockchain. See. What okay. I'm putting is claim A, which has an ID, right. that, I see. that details of what's in the claim I'm not putting. So we want to make sure that basically an insurance company and let's say the healthcare provider are getting that same information and understanding the status of the claim, but we don't actually know the details of that claim. Okay. So this design matters tremendously about what goes on in the blockchain. Design matters tremendously in every technology. And once the mainstream press starts writing about it, then we forget about it. But even in Bitcoin itself, okay, let's just take an example. We might want to think that Bitcoin being at 60 some thousand dollars, it's going to be the world's currency. Pui. Okay? <laughs> because what can Bitcoin do today? Bitcoin can do seven transactions per second. Well, our world economy is over 50,000 transactions per second. So can we do this? No. Well, why can't we just speed Bitcoin up? Come on, Tash, put some more computers there. No, we can't. Because we have made design trade-offs in Bitcoin where we have a certain size for every block. The size of the block determines the number of transactions that can fit in a block. Now what we do is we commit a block every 10 minutes on average. That, the size of the block and how often we commit the block 
determines the transaction per second. Well, Tej, why can't we commit blocks more often? Why can't we make the size of the block larger? Yeah, because now we have a problem. We have a distributed system. We can say everybody has the same copy of the distributed ledger. At any given point in time T, does everybody do? No. What we can say is, at some point, everybody will have the same ledger. So the more we commit blocks, the more chances we have of the ledgers going out of sync. The more we make the blocks larger, the more time we will spend transmitting them. So these are all design trade-offs we make. And is every cryptocurrency designed the same way, where it's a 10-minute increment of updating the ledger? No, 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 no. So now comes the important point. How do we value these things? One of the ways we value them is, well, okay, how well is this designed? What is the probability that it can be manipulated? I don't want to use the word hacked, that people can collude to do something that's wrong. And a lot of that would depend on how much can the ledgers go out of sync. So, for example, there are certain current currencies that have a higher throughput per second. For example, Ethereum. Ethereum has a higher throughput per second. Now, if you look at Ethereum and Bitcoin, they're using the same consensus algorithm called proof of work, which is a computationally expensive algorithm. We want it to be computationally expensive. Why do we want it to be computationally expensive? Because that means it's not easy to go manipulate the blocks that have been committed. If it was not computationally expensive, I could just have a PC do that. So Ethereum makes it slightly easier to commit blocks. Not bad. They still use proof of work. All the stuff that is hot right now, Cardano, Solano, they don't use proof of work. They use proof of stake. Different. Ethereum 2.0, which they say they're going to release, but they've not released. They're working on it. They're very close now, they say, is going to move to proof of stake. These are details. These are technical details. But that goes into understanding. So this really fits in very nicely with the theme of our show. The technical details matter because as it impacts on things like the fungibility of it, the nature of the distributed ledger, or the way in which we think about the liquidity of these markets. I definitely know that the technical details matter in terms of the credibility of how well the double spend problem is solved, Data is immutable. Everybody has the same data. So how well are those claims achieved? That's where the technical details matter. Fungibility, I would say, depends on what you're ascribing this currency to, what you're ascribing the token to. Liquidity, I would say, matters more from behavior. Are people willing to exchange? Are we seeing the network effects that we want to see? So what I'm saying is, Tech doesn't drive all of them, but the main, the foundational aspects are still the tech design decisions we make. So, I mean, it's quite fascinating to go from, on the one hand, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to this other application in healthcare. One seems to be limited in terms of what you want to get out of this blockchain technology. The other seems like we are thinking about completely changing the world in terms of how do you do financial exchanges and so on? So you've said, okay, there are some technical limitations. On the other hand, because of privacy concerns, we have to design things the right way. Are there other applications you can think of that are exciting right now? And are there anything new that people haven't spoken about? Because most people, if you say blockchain, immediately they say Bitcoin. But what we are trying to get out of this is blockchain is an underlying technology, as you said, has been around much longer than Bitcoin and can be used for things other than financial transactions. I just want to put a little fine tune on it. I'm not going to say that 
blockchain has been around. Because what is blockchain? At the heart, it's a distributed ledger. Distributed databases have been around. We've been trying to make them very useful, make them as useful as centralized databases, as easy to use. So they've been around. Cryptography has been around for a long time. You know, we have all the algorithms, they've been around. Peer-to-peer -peer networking has been around way before Napster, but definitely became popular with Napster. We have had game theory around for a long time. Before the people who say they're Satoshi Nakamoto put it together, we didn't really have a Bitcoin with blockchain the way we talk about it now. So that is really cool. But now what you talked about is, yeah, on the one hand, we have, we're going to change the world. And on the other hand, I'm saying, you know, I'm just going to tell people the status of the thing. So one thing I want to tell you is, I feel the way to change the world is one step at a time. So I always think of small applications. So what are some applications that I think are going to work? So I just want to put the theme on them. The theme I want to put is, if we have some data and value exchange in a closed network of parties where the parties still don't know each other and still don't trust each other, where we can keep exchanging and transacting within that closed ecosystem and occasionally go make an exchange, like convert something to something else. That's an ideal application. The country and the community that took this the farthest got started at least a decade ago. And so that was Estonia. And Estonia has used it for voting. Estonia has used it for land records. Estonia has used it for everything. Now, as soon as Estonia tried to make it bigger and try to get into cryptocurrency and all those kinds of things, now they're having problems and they're trying to regulate. So that was Estonia. We also have small applications in food safety. So if you take Walmart with tracking food supply and knowing where the outbreak came from, well, that's a real application. Or we take global transportation with Maersk doing a blockchain to track containers and shipping, but not just doing blockchain, but also digitizing the workflow of what happens as we go across border. So the Merck is this Danish Merck. company. Yeah, M-A-E. The, the largest uh, Yeah, the largest, yeah. Company, yeah. So they have a joint venture. Now, all of these applications that I'm describing to you fall in a particular category of blockchain called permissioned private. That means only parties that are approved can join the network and their identity has to be established before they can work on the network. Now, the excitement is in the permissionless public blockchains. And by the way, they are computationally more robust. You know, this is not real yet, but I want to tout one of my students who are building a blockchain, public permissionless, for tracking donations. Here's a perfect example. We want to deal with people who are not banked. We're dealing with still a small community, understood community, but we still don't trust each other. But what kind of prevents us from donating money? Well, because we don't know what's going on and how much is going to get spent in overhead. So we take the overhead away, we take the middleman away, and we build a blockchain where you can give money and know it gets spent the way you want it because you can put terms in how my donation wants to be used. So we have to be very careful in selecting the right case and then implementing it the right way. So anything where there is this benefit of an open ledger being auditable by a third party or by some type of AI application, those are places where potentially a blockchain could help because that transparency of all the transactions kind of gives us some, in this case for nonprofits, we're donating money, we can take a look and say, yes, in fact, they're business practices. Not unlike what you described with Walmart, I guess, as well. Exactly, or take us wanting to track opioids. Where they come from, where are they going, what's happening with them? Okay, great. Should be public, should be permissionless. We can get the FDA behind it. So there are models in which we don't have to have, nobody has no control to one single party has all the control. 
there's a middle ground somewhere. So, but look, can we go back to anonymity for a second? Because I thought we were going with some of the donations is that I don't really want, if I'm making a donation, to then be approached by all these other nonprofits trying to go ahead and ask me for money as well. But anonymity really only matters for the people who are participating in the private part of the blockchain. Is that right? So there are two parts. So we can have permissioned public. So permissioned public means that there's some authority that gave you permission to join, but you can transact anonymously. I see. Okay. So that would work. And just to connect the dots with something you mentioned earlier, is that potentially could also impact us on the health side as well, where we can do things like be able to take a look at the way in which patients are transacting without necessarily giving up their identity. Exactly. What we can actually do is give the patient control over their record. And then all we put in the blockchain is, I am letting you, Dr. So-and-so, access my record or this portion of my record for this period of my time and so on. Or, Mr. Clinical Trial Company, you want my record? You're going to give me something for it. So on and so forth. So we move the ownership of data to the word that we like to use as a sovereign individual. There's a lot of tension in all of this. There's a lot of work to be done. But these are the places where it is going to work. And this, of course, gets back to a governance issue, like who's going to govern the data. And the whole point of the blockchain was the governments with a small G governments doesn't necessarily have to be the sovereign big G governments like the United States or Japan or any other country. The governance of data is something I'm less worried about. You're not worried about it? No, 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 I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you why. Because as soon as I put the data in a ledger and it's all public key and cryptographic, you can take it. You're not going to make sense of it. I don't care about it anymore, okay? What I'm worried about is the rules that underlie the working of the blockchain system as a, overall. So this is a distributed system. So we all are running the system. We don't have any guarantee that every node is running the same system. We don't have a guarantee that some central power decides, I'm going to change, instead of committing blocks every 10 minutes, I'm going to commit blocks every minute, and that everybody agrees to it. So when we realize that there's something not working, or there's a change we want to make, who decides that? How do we decide that? How do we make that happen? And how do we make sure it's for the good of everyone? So that is the governance that I am truly focused on. And there are models. There's a way Bitcoin does it. And guess what? It's not working because all the original players that were involved, that had credibility, are no longer playing a role. So not many changes are happening. Ethereum, on the other hand, is controlled by one individual and so on and so forth. I just, I keep getting back to this idea that the design of the technology matters tremendously in terms of its application. And when we talk about blockchain, it doesn't just come in one flavor. See, I think I know what has happened here. What has happened is you're the business person and I'm the technologist. <laughs> so you're going to keep saying the design of the technology. And I'm going to say the design of the technology is important, but not the sole arbiter. The design of the technology controls a few things. It is the people governance, the social governance that we put around the technology that eventually, I think, is the make or break. What I'm hearing is that clearly the design of the technology is important. Then there has to be some level of agreement because you can't have a completely arbitrary things that evolve as the blockchain gets built. You're going to lose the rules of the game right from the beginning, and then it's not truly a blockchain. It may be just yet another system. So you need to have some set of rules when you design the technology. But at the end of the day, the governance, if I may call it the small g, depends a lot on what people agree to, what can be shared and what cannot be shared and those kinds of things. And on, that's absolutely correct. And that's why I'm a big advocate 
for us going small, going in small ecosystems where we can test, we can try governance models. We can try what are the trade-offs, what are the pros and the cons, what incentivizes what kind of behavior, what disincentivizes what kind of behavior before we roll this out. Right. Let me stop you there with the word we. Who is this we? I mean, I'm sure you've also heard that blockchain is being used for all sorts of activities that may or may not be something that society necessarily likes. So give you two examples, and I'd like to see a reaction to this. So number one, because there is no governance with the big G, with the central governments or even state governments, it's very easy to have a blockchain network that deals with illicit drugs, for example, where only the people in the network know what's going on. So that's one kind of activity. The other thing that where blockchain has come into criticism is that as it gets bigger and bigger, there's a lot more computing power to do things on proof of work, for example, and that a lot of my friends are working on climate change. The moment you say blockchain, their first reaction is, no, blockchain is the worst thing that can happen to climate change. So uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on those things. And by the way, I agree with you, friends. But let me take the first one. And I want to give just two factors to keep in mind. One is, yes, there could be illicit transactions. But here is the backup. We can trace money to the source in blockchain. We can't do that in any other system. So if we have to actually find people, we can. And the catch is, if you are going to any of these exchanges, Coinbase, Binance, to get your first Bitcoin or to get your wallet, the key that you have is tied to you. And all those exchanges have to follow know your customer laws. So if we can get your key, we can get your identity. And we can trace, and once we got your key, we can trace where that money came from, and we can trace where that money came from, and we can trace where that money came from. So now, once you get your wallet from an exchange, the exchange is an SEC regulated, so the feds can get that. Some of these things may be below in the dark net, you know? doesn't matter if you're in the dark net. If your key is obtained from an exchange, your identity is no longer protected. I try to jokingly call it, you know, we used to have single-entry accounting and double-entry accounting. In blockchain, we have triple-entry accounting. <laughs> we can just kind of track everything. On blockchain, on the proof of work, we have a problem. So there is a lot of research going on. The problems are quite more than just energy. Might be the biggest problem. But other problems are algorithms like this are kind of conducive to ASICs, specialized hardware. Well, who can afford ASICs and specialized hardware? the rich people. If the rich people get all of that, then they control the mining. If they control the mining, then they can collude. So that's the problem. So we need to come up with hash algorithms, and a lot of people are working on that, where we can use commodity hardware, where we can use commodity hardware and at the same time, not consume the amount of energy we're consuming. Of course, whatever energy we consume, we should kind of say that it should all be renewable energy. It should all be done in a sustainable way. But there's no way to guarantee that. But we have to work on that. And that's why I go back to you got to do these things in small, closed ecosystems where you can actually have the governance, where the things that the technology doesn't control, we can have oversight on. I really feel we got to go small. And every time I see the price of Bitcoin go up, I feel depressed. Is there a role for the government? Is there a role for public policy to talk about size and so on? And what form do you think that could take? 
there is definitely a role for public policy. Okay. And we're seeing some extremes happening. On the one hand, we are seeing countries like China basically say, we are going to not allow mining. We're not going to allow any cryptocurrency. And we are just going to allow our digital yuan, which is their central bank digital currency, which has a whole lot of its own problems. So that's one extreme. On the other hand, you have what I might call some not-so-powerful regimes. I wanted to use a more derogatory term, but I won't, like a Venezuela or like a Ukraine, but they are adopting this, and they're having the problems with it. What I want to lay out, though, for whoever listens to this is as follows. Bitcoin today is not working as a currency. So the cryptocurrency term is wrong. It is just an asset that we have decided to give it some value. I'm not someone who can say whether the value is right or wrong. That is the value, and it's more sentiment-driven than anything else. Nobody is using that asset with such volatility as a medium of exchange, so that is not money, point number one. Point number two is all these companies that are getting rich with their IPOs, Binance, Coinbase, etc., they're not cryptocurrency companies. They are exchanges. They are clearing houses. They are centralized middlemen themselves. When the original people envisioned Bitcoin, they didn't envision people like this. So beware all of you who are going getting their wallets from them. The third point I'm going to make, and I think this is interesting, because what Bitcoin gave you was money, which we've turned into an asset. What Ethereum gave you was a way to take an underlying token for exchange and build applications on top of it. So that's why we, sometimes we refer to Ethereum as programmable money. So now we have this token, which is the native token, which we can say currency or asset in the case of Bitcoin. But then on top of that token, we derive other tokens, which we can tie to value, which we can tie to energy, which we can tie to commodity, which we can tie to land, which we can tie to art. And now we create applications from them where we take the middle people out. That's kind of where it happens. And we're still early. So I hate to be the last guy who spends $89,000 buying the Bitcoin, but that might happen. And I might be around for that. <laughs> so we're, as you described this, you're moving away then from just talking about cryptocurrencies to talking about non-fungible tokens, for example. Non-fungible or fungible? So non-fungible would be there's only one of a kind. Fungible would be if I connect it to oil or if I connect it to energy or if I connect it to carbon credits. And we're building them on top of it, just like you would build on top of any platform. Yeah, we tech people, we call it layer one, layer two. Layer one is our consensus protocol with the way we store the data and the way we manage it and the way we program the smart contract. Layer two would be stuff we built on top of that. And then layer three is the application. And there is a lot of energy and work happening in layer one, layer two, and layer three. And that's kind of where I feel the energy is. So you're absolutely right. I feel as long as we don't make the mistakes that we made with social media, where we made winner-take-all kind of approach, we should be okay. But we have to let some of this mania go away. So it's interesting. So we started with blockchain, and Bitcoin kept coming into the picture. So you just can't avoid it. Can't avoid it. But it seems to me that, listening to you, that one of the best things that may have come out of this may be this concept of tokens and having a platform on which you can build lots of interesting, cool applications. And presumably these tokens are not going to start getting a value for themselves and become some kind of speculative part of this system. 
is interesting. So, I mean, I'm sure our audience would also like to understand because you used the word token and then Joe jumped in and spoke about non-fungible tokens and so on. Can you explain a little bit about what this non-fungible tokens and how is that being used these days? Think of non-fungible token as either a piece of art which is unique or as a piece of memorabilia that has been authenticated. And what you want to do is once that has happened, you want to write that in the ledger so no one can change it and you can establish ownership. So we say it's non-fungible. That means it cannot be converted. One thing is not the same like another thing. But what we are really doing is establishing the authenticity of a piece of art or a piece of memorabilia. And we are establishing the ownership of it in a ledger in a way that that cannot be swindled with. And by the way, you can apply that same logic to land records. You know, every land, every house built on the land, we can think of it as an NFT. Now, that's the mechanics. I can't explain the value, but I cannot explain the value of a painting selling at Christie's for $2 billion. I can't. I'm just not smart enough for that. Okay. So that's what's happening in the NFT world. So it's been an interesting conversation with you. Is there anything else that an audience listening to a podcast on blockchain should think about or know about, you know, that we haven't actually spoken about? I want to say some of my favorite things. Technology has created a lot of productivity and efficiencies in our economy. We're not done yet. I feel one of the biggest factors hindering our productivity right now is the fact that we have siloed proprietary data that only one party in an exchange understands. And when that happens, we create what I call the three R's of inefficiency. We do redundant work, we do rework, and we do reconciliation work. My faith is that once we can get the adoption of distributed ledger blockchain technology, we can reduce the three R's. And I feel that's where the next big boom of tech-driven productivity is going to come from. So that's one part I want to say. The second part I want to say is that when we have tokens and you express the hope that we don't have the mania with the tokens that we have with something else, some other currencies, my fear is that that is going to happen. And the reason I believe that is because there are already so many papers out there saying, how do you analyze the value of a token? Oh, we have technical analysis and we have fundamental analysis. So they're using legitimate ways of evaluating assets and then applying them to tokens in what I would consider kind of not a real legitimate way. And some of that reminds me of the way we used to value dot-coms. Oh, well, value the number of impressions, value the number of unique accounts, because we couldn't tie it to earnings. I feel the same is happening, and that's what we got to be wary of. And that's kind of my hope is that we can get beyond those kinds of things and solve real business problems, which is what we did with the internet to get the boom we got. But we had to go through that initial crazy phase. So where are we with this crazy phase? Are we kind of coming to the point where you had said you worry about the fact that Bitcoin prices go up, that people maybe their attention is drawn elsewhere. Have we gotten to the point where we've kind of crossed the chasm and we're there at the early adoption stage? If you look at where the investing money is going, it's still crazy. It's still going in all kinds of places. What would be a sign for me that we are crossing the chasm is us having the type of crash that we had for the dot-com in the 98, 99, 2000 period. When that happens, I will know we are crossing the okay. chasm. Okay, fair enough. Thank you. 
All right. Thank you very much, Tej. Great to have you. Thank you very much for your keen insight and wisdom. Next week on Future of Humanity. So mining is a hazardous operation. Humans are involved in it. And one of our first spin-off companies, Accent Technologies now, has over 70 people developing autonomous drones that, that navigate mines several hundred feet below the ground. They're able to be our eyes and ears under the ground, mapping every part of the mine, going up vertical stopes, uh, tens of hundreds of feet high without any human supervision and gathering data that previously was just difficult to gather. So so not only are you saving, making it safer for humans to operate in these kinds of settings, but you're also gathering data that makes the whole mining operation uh, more efficient and in effect drives down the cost of, of, of manufacturing. You heard from Vijay Kumar, the Dean of Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Vijay Kumar is one of the world's leading experts on robotics and automation, has been working most recently on drones that can help different segments of industry. You can get Future of Humanity wherever you listen to your podcasts. 